You're listening to The Great Coaches Podcast. Hi everyone, pardon the interruption, but just a quick message from me to let you know about the leadership survey we have just placed on the website. Here at The Great Coaches, we believe that there is no algorithm for leadership, but we have gone back to the transcripts of the more than 200 great coaches we've interviewed to identify their key leadership traits. We've then created a survey of 20 questions to help you compare your leadership style to theirs. It's free, only takes a few minutes to complete, and should help you find areas of relative strength and weakness. If you'd like to know more, check out our website, thegreatcoachespodcast.com. Hi, I'm Kara Berry, host of Everyone's Business But Mine, and I am an all-inclusive addict. Enter Club Med, the best all-inclusive for you and your family. With resorts worldwide from their family flagship resort, Club Med Punta Cana, to their only mountain resort in Canada, Club Med Quebec, they have everything you need to relax. With their 20-plus sports activities, wellness programs, you can dine on delicious cuisine and make memories with your family. So book your next getaway with Club Med. Visit clubmed.us or call 1-800-CLUB-MED or your travel advisor. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to the Great Coaches Podcast. To me, being perfect is not about that scoreboard out there. This is a chance of lifetime. When you can understand the person, you can then work towards a common goal. We are all on the same team. Now you roll and do it to the best of your ability. Focus on the fundamentals. We've gone over time and time again. Your defense has got to be better. Leave no doubt tonight. Great moments are born from great opportunity. My name is Paul Barnett, and you are listening to The Great Coaches Podcast, where we explore leadership through the lens of high-performance sport by interviewing great coaches from around the world to try and find ideas to help all of us lead our teams better. Our great coach on this episode is surf coach Andy King. Andy says that he started walking, talking, and surfing all at the same time, so it wasn't surprising that he became a professional surfer in 1996. His career lasted for eight years, but then on a night out with his girlfriend and now wife Nadine, he was hit from behind and fell to the ground, smashing his cochlea. When he woke, he was deaf and had lost his sense of equilibrium. With the help of other pro surfers, he was able to receive a cochlear implant so that he could hear again. He relearned to walk and was eventually able to surf again as well. But his days as a professional were over, and this led him into coaching. He started as a coach for young surfers on the Red Bull circuit in America and went on to coach Mick Fanning on his way to three world championships in 2007, 2009 and 2013. Then in 2013, with surfing confirmed as an Olympic sport at the 2020 Games, he was appointed as National Surfing Australia coach based at the Hurley High Performance Centre on the Gold Coast. Today he is a professional coach 
for many surfers on the world tour. In our discussion, we talk about the shark attack that Mick Fanning experienced in 2015, and the memory was particularly emotional for Andy as just two days prior, a surfer had been killed by a shark at Green Mound Beach in Coolangatta, a place he surfs on the weekends with his children. Andy blends a deep appreciation for life with the desire to be the type of coach that can help improve the lives of others and the culture of the sport he loves. This was a terrific discussion with a person that has embraced the second chance that life has given them, and I hope you enjoy it as much as Jim and I did. The Great Coaches Podcast. Andy King, good afternoon and welcome to The Great Coaches Podcast. Uh, thank you. Thanks for having us. I mean, yeah, different times, zones, different worlds, but um, I'm glad we coordinated, mate. We caught up. Well, you're living in paradise. So can we just start by getting you to tell me where you are in the world and what you've been up to today? Right now, I'm in Kurumban Valley on the Gold Coast. I just came back from Noosa. I had a job up there working with Keely Andrews, who's a world tour athlete, women's world tour surfer. Under pretty shocking circumstances, why we weren't on the Gold Coast, as pretty much the world would have seen earlier, somebody got taken at Greenmount. So I had to shift, because they closed the beaches here on the Gold Coast, I had to shift my training up to Noosa. So I've just gotten back from Noosa. I, I left at three o'clock this morning and picked up one of my mates who just got out of isolation. So I picked him up on the way through the minute he got out of ISO. So yeah, it's a crazy time across some borders and, and everything's pretty crazy. Eddie, I've been so excited to interview you since I started reading up on your backstory and your life. And I can't wait to sort of work through that with you today. So thanks for making the time. I'd like to just start by winding the clock back a little bit if I could because you've had first-hand experience of some pretty great coaches and teachers through your career. Gary Green, Andy Walsh, and you talk about Clancy Dawson. So can I just ask by start by asking you, what do you think the great coaches do differently? I think the great coaches, I think it's just a natural, I don't know if it can be taught. I think it's a a natural sort of empathetic space where they walk in whatever their client's shoes are and they gain trust super quick, like, and that authenticity. And I just think you hear it as buzzwords, but it's something that can't be said. It happens without that interaction that you have with a person, like you read their body language and, and humans pick up on that. And coming from somebody that's deaf, by reading facial expressions and you can't sum it up in one thing. And all great coaches that I know don't do that as a job. Like, they're naturally that person. Like, we were always in that space, even before it became any chance to make money out of it. We just did that, especially in our surf culture. Like, our surf culture, there was always our elders that passed that on to us. And there's an element, for me, there's an element of guilt where my stomach and my heart and my head aren't connected because I charge money for it now. So I've actually, I'm trying to offset that guilt by contributing back to development because I I feel guilty because so many of my forefathers gave that for free. And those forefathers just did it. Like I said, mate, they just did it naturally. And we kind of turned it into, we turned it into career and into money. So I'm not real proud of that. Like I'm not proud that I get paid because people did that for free in the past and that was part of our culture. I don't want that to be lost and I don't want to be responsible for that. So there's an element of responsibility now that I'm making a career out of it and it's brought me a lot of shiny shit. So I'm kind of, to be quite honest, I'm a, I'm a bit at war with myself because 
probably dig a bit deeper into that. But, yeah, I honestly feel that way. So I think now like at that stage, it's easy to say and it's easy for me to say because we're rich, white, middle-aged people now and it's great But I like to have gotten there. But right now I want to I want to actually really test that skill of coaching to do it with people I'm comfortable with, people that don't like me. Can I gain that trust and can I, are these skills transferable to people that straight up already dis? trust you or a lot they've already got doubt i think that for me to explore that space in coaching that's where i want to sort of move to to see whether the skills are valuable other than just when you gain a respect or a name for yourself as a coach people come to you but you're just surrounded by people that believe what you say so you kind of inhaling your own exhaust fumes so to speak i want to test that more on a level with especially indigenous people in our country at the time and multicultural place been through that i'd like to do that i'd like to test that what are you finding then as you test yourself in that space are you learning more about your own abilities and your own outlook on life yeah, I think definitely. It's also just to be challenged again. Like I said, I, I was in a really fortunate situation. Like after the accident happened, the people that I competed against basically created a role for me and the trust was already there. I was so blessed. They basically gave me an opportunity. I already had those relationships, so I was really lucky. And then now I'm sort of challenging whether it was just the fact that I'd already had those relationships that I was valued and that was kind of just, they're pretty influential people, so that kind of just filtered down. And I took a job on with a Russian lady last year. At the time, her name is Angelica. She won gold in London Olympics for synchronised swimming and 11 world titles. So she spent most of her life suspended in water. And for me, it was fascinating to start on that journey to see whether I could match that from the beginner surf school to the elite. So I didn't ever do anything in that mid-ground. I worked in Cronulla as a beginner surf coach from 1994 until 2004 when I fractured my skull at beginner surf school. So, And then I went straight from that because I was competing during that time to the elite level, which was world tour. So I never got that middle ground. And I had opportunity with this Russian lady, Angelica, to do that. And that kind of sparked me on this journey and this trajectory to find discomfort and how quickly you can earn trust because even obviously with the Russians there's, there's that east versus west there's already all those that's kind of that demographic well on our history just even the way that the movies and the governments and everyone they were basically the enemy capitalism and communism and to get into that and to gain that trust and I mean, I'm really lucky. The ocean kind of brings that together because the ocean's so unpredictable and you get yourself or you get a client in really big waves and you know that it's controlled because we've got the expertise to some extent to control that, but you can gain trust really well when people are in that flight or fright or life and death situation. So I kind of knew how to, to break that. And then obviously use the Australian thing that we aren't part of the empire anymore. We were convicts, not too different to yourself. So we're not with Alliance America or we're basically convicts. We were sent here. We were sent from the motherland. And so it kind of broke up with that pretty quickly. And then to see that and to have a really good relationship with the Russians. So that kind of sent me on that journey. And for me, it was really stimulating. Like it was probably the most enjoyable coaching and the hardest at that same same time. It was the hardest, but the most enjoyable to see that the skills and everything you have are legit. You can really help someone. Angelica, now is she, her goal was to get to the Olympics. Is that going to happen for her? Well, we were on that. We're trying to explore dry land exercises that are going to keep up that skill set that she learned. But I was shocked by how incredible that woman was. And I've never seen anyone with work ethic like 
like she had, and her skills, like, because awareness has been suspended in water since she was about 12 years old. So she came out to Australia, and to be quite honest, I started the experience. It wasn't going to be a high-performance project. It was just going to be a cultural exchange and an experience. So I asked her to come and track Mount Warning for us. It's most easily point in Australia where you can see the sunrise. And she's like, I can't walk. Like, you can't walk. And she's like, I can't hike or do these climbs and I'm, what do you mean like and she's like i've been suspended in water for so long that the pressure of gravity against her spine because she was training so hard in the pool yeah she can't run or walk or because it's like she's been in an embryo for, for 17 years of her life like the training that they do she was training seven days a week 12 hours a day in the pool it was fascinating like so it ended up with that is the benefit that her awareness, like her spatial awareness and the sensation that she could have and, and the control that she had over her body was just phenomenal. If she got in trouble, if a set came and I could take her into quite big waves, I'm talking like eight to ten feet, she could just sit out the set because she could hold her breath for like four minutes. So I'm like, if you get in trouble, just go to the bottom and hold on. Like the set will pass in 45 seconds. 45 seconds for her was she didn't even need it. I have so much respect for her. And it, and it turned into turned into a relationship where I, to be quite honest, it was prickly and it was so many, you couldn't have got more opposite person, someone from Moscow that barely surfed. At first, it was draining, and there's no way I expected the relationship to go. I really miss her and her friends, and I really enjoyed working with the Russians because it's not like Americans or Australians where there's so much bullshit, like in conversation, you know, that you really got to dig deep to find out what they mean because there's so much surface stuff. It's fully transactional relationship with them. It's just like, I don't like you. I don't like what we did. I don't want anything to do with you. It's so honest. So it was a really easy place to work and I really enjoyed it. And I look forward to the world opening up when I can reconnect with them again. Andy, I want to talk about how you started your coaching journey because you talked about it a little bit then. You, you went over to the Red Bull program in America and within four years, you had five surfers qualify for the world tour. And you said that results came when you took care of their health and well-being. So I'd like to say, yeah. ask you, in a sport like surfing, what is the role of the coach? There's a lot of hats, as most coaches, but we're not separated. Like, we don't have a lot of staff. Like, we don't have physios and, and sports psychs that travel with you, or you don't have a team. So, you're shoulder to shoulder with your athletes. So, that's what I mean. Like, that's genuine. Like, you can't live and go on a three-month tour and put a mask on because you don't switch off. You're living with, you're sharing the dinner table, you're sharing breakfast table together. So, I was you get exposed really quick, what I'm trying to say. is like you can't just sign off at the end of the day and go, we're going to do a six-hour session, and then you go back to your room and you have your own dinner and you can debrief and turn into somebody else. Like You're living with them. You're shoulder to shoulder, so it's like that. Like I said, you can kind of get exposed, so you have to care for them. I've never, never had a relationship like or coaching where there's somebody that you can work with that you don't care for their family and their well-being and, and the, lot, the amount of time that you spend on the road. Our tour, there's no on and off season. That tour is like you're on from March until December and then you're back. Like the off season might be those sort of, you know, you might get a couple of weeks over Christmas before you get back into it. Yeah, so you, you basically, it's your life. And our families are included, you know, and our wives and our children's. It's a life. It's not a role. It's not a job. It's not, it's not a title. You live with them. Andy, you've talked about your upbringing and the fact that you didn't have a great role model in your father. I don't mean to put words in your mouth, but I'm, that's what I no, understand no. from the way you've talked about him. So how did you yeah. develop this 
empathy, this authenticity, this connection that is so important to your coaching style? Where did it come from? It definitely came, like I said, from my mum and from women. Like always, as you say, when you meet your wife, like always. And I don't know if that was natural. Like, you know, you've got a masculine and a feminine side. And it's like, I'm six foot three and like so i'm quite a tall guy so i've been and like i said i through the violence and through that with my father and the way that our beaches were set up and structured it was a lot of it was more gangs it was segregated and i i always sort of had that respect that i could explore those other things i was never trying to be tough i didn't need to beat anybody up because they saw what i lived and they they already respected that because my father was so dominant and violent in that area as well that I was just underneath him. So I got to explore those things because I was never threatened by anyone else other than my own father. So anything I did outside or what I was copying at home, the rest of the world was a safe place where I kind of got to explore that because it was actually to get the fuck out of home was the safest thing. Like I talked about, I slept with a knife underneath my bed and my father was just extremely violent. He'd come home drunk with the boxing gloves on and we'd fight every night. So I was kind of pretty capable of looking after myself. So it was like that wasn't even a concern for me. The concern was just to stay away from my father, lock my door down and make sure when he come home as drunk that and if I survived that night, then the rest of the world was kind of a safe place where I could explore empathy and those other things because it was like I didn't want to go down that pathway I knew that reactiveness and in the way that he had the way that my father was it was I didn't want to live like that like it was such a fucking terrible space to be constantly in that fight mode or fight was those two options and and just to be wired like that from such a young age I just didn't want to stay in that space and I didn't want to repeat that I didn't want to influence anyone down that journey I don't know where I just came purely out of being that uncomfortable and that fucking scared that I didn't want to put anyone else through that and I didn't want to live like that thanks for sharing that Andy I, I can appreciate it there's a quote from you and that says I never really learned to hear until I was rendered completely deaf mm. and I'd like to ask what did you learn from that experience that horrible night in Cronulla when you were king hit that has influenced your own coaching philosophy and the style and the way you interact with people today I think with ego, with titles, with like being an athlete, I was forced into it, basically. Like I was forced to, to either continue down that path. And we spoke a little bit earlier about just as mates, we spoke about breaking cycles. And I, as much as I was that empathetic person towards women and, and explore that space, I still, it was a pretty violent place. And I still felt like there was ego there, that it was my town and I was a young athlete and I... I still had that alpha kind of dominance in us, just hard to break up with it when you live with that every day of your life, when you're growing up. So I was young and ego was a huge part of it. So being stripped of that and losing my equilibrium and being in hospital and that deafness, like I said, because when you couldn't read, I had doctors and the facial expressions that they had. I had one doctor and every time he walked in the room, because at the time I, I had an air bubble on the carotid pulse, feeds the blood to your brain. So that was way more of a threat than my deafness or my eyes bleeding out because the pressure, if that popped and they'll bled out. So that was hanging over my head. So I had this one doctor that would walk in the room and just naturally his face or whatever was going on at home, he just always looked like he was shocked and worried. So I was reading people's faces because I couldn't hear anything so I couldn't see what they were saying. I had one of those squidgy boards where people were trying to write things down. So it was just like reading people's faces and this guy walked in every time and I was petrified. I'm like, oh, I'm going to fucking die. Every time I looked at this guy because his face was like, it just naturally look worried and admittedly I just learned so much with that on the way that people were as well and I, I learned about 
the professional. I had 15 referrals before I found Dr. Chang. Philip Chang is like, like I've said in other pieces, probably the most one of the most influential men in my life, and he's a freaking genius. I just I'm so grateful for him because every other doctor was basically wanted to give me a disabled sticker, take away my license because I've got no equilibrium and I'm completely deaf. They they just wanted to basically take it, and I had to really dig deep and understand that and respect the doctors that got insurances as well. So if they said, "Hey, mate, go get back in the ocean and I drowned, I could see that how they would trace that back to responsibility. So by reading that, and I just really had to be empathetic and think about how they come up with a summary that oh, I was completely screwed. They didn't give me any hope because I could have just been on disability for the rest of my life. And rightfully so for them, because if they told you to get out and you're going to do rehab past their grounds in the public hospital system where they just have walkers, you know, to hang on the, to the sides and, and stabilise yourself, then they could be held accountable with our system. I don't know what it's like in Europe, but here there's just so much, so many rules and, and so many regulations that they can't encourage you to go back to that. So they basically treated me like a 90-year-old stroke victim, even though I was a 27-year-old athlete. So I was reading their faces and realising what structures and what boundaries people were working that influenced my coaching because you have to understand where people came from and what you, where you can take them. So I guess that's how it influenced it. And in surfing, you've been very vocal about surfers losing their creativity and their flair, and you've worked really hard to try and introduce this and bring this artistic element back to surfing. Can you talk a little bit about how you you coach them to unlock that more creative part of their expression? I think it definitely comes from teenagers. It comes from youth. If you get early enough, like if you get in there, we're naturally men and women through that age group, they like to experiment. They drive fast. They drink too much. They, t- they, ex- you know, they take too much quantity of whatever it is that they're doing. They do that. So it's like, why would you ask them to complete something to try and get a score when that's when they're at their most creative and their most risk taking is at that age? So it was actually like, by the time if they got to me, if I got to an athlete and I tried to have to teach them about breaking up with with completion and structure past about eighteen or nineteen, it was such a long road to do to get back to that creative space so it was like trying to tap back into to what else if with those older people like we have to get them early like basically what i'm trying to say is like if you can get that teenager and and give them permission to push the limits and stuff in the ocean or whatever sport they're doing you're going to have huge gains like that's that area where you can definitely do it but as they got older i had to look externally like outside of the sport because they'd been in the system for so long they'd already been rewarded for things and mediocrity sometimes especially with the way the system you have an events every weekend they don't have space to explore and experiment because they've got a contest coming and they're rewarded for mediocrity basically completing waves so it was looking at other sports what were their other passions was it skateboarding was it dance was it music and trying to really find out where their other passions were to unlock that creativity and then transfer that back to surfing for anyone that was over that teenage Makes me want to explore my creative side a little bit more. <laughs> just listening to you, you realise how much you let it go when you get older. You just let it go. So true. Like, it's so true. And I said, I wouldn't have been on that journey. I wouldn't have come down that path if, if it hadn't been for that, that accident. When I had to basically, I was brought right back to being a toddler, like learning to walk again. No equilibrium. I couldn't leave my bed. I had nurses wiping my ass. It was like, so I was basically at 27. I had to relearn all that again. So I kind of got to relive 
uh, second life. So there's no way I would be having this conversation if I, I had to remain an athlete and hadn't explored that personally myself like that regrowth. And it's only, it's due to an unfortunate situation, but at the same time, learning those things again, it's like, well, okay, it's, this is rock bottom. I'm starting again. What did I do wrong in the first life? I've got a second chance. Let's go <laughs> figure it out. Like, it's not, yeah, I'm not, like I said, I've got no education, mate. It's not rocket science. It's just you fucked it up the first time, so you've got another chance. Don't do it again. <laughs> so, Good philosophy for life. Hi, everyone. I'm here with Professor Eric Knight, the Executive Dean of the Macquarie Business School, and he's just stepped out of the classroom. So, Eric, what skills do you think leaders need to develop today to impact tomorrow? I think tomorrow is going to be digital. So the skills that we need in leaders is, one, strategy, so that they can see the outside world and understand all the changes that are playing out. But two, a people skills, so they can work with people's inside world motivate them to be able to see the issues that matter and find ways through so that we solve those problems together. Thanks, Eric. The master's programs at the Macquarie Business School, designed to empower you, challenge you and transform the way you think. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your Cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. I was really fascinated when you said, this was quite interesting, most world champions and gold medalists are troubled humans to some extent. There's something burning in them to prove something greater than themselves. Could you talk a little bit more about why you believe this? I just think to be that singly obsessed, you know, like if you're not on the spectrum, like I believe in autism and stuff, like if you're on the spectrum, I believe that could be incredible for sport because you don't worry about anything else. There's nothing else that's getting in your head other than that laser focus of, of whatever you're good at or whatever you actually focus on. So I reckon there's a, a huge space. I'd love to explore that with um, people that are on the spectrum. I think um, having said that like that, I've just seen it and I think that's just so fun. Focus. They don't. They don't take in anything else that's sort of happening around them. I rarely see it. And if they do, it's a real relearning to make those skills transferable into normal life. It's just a really weird space. It's an odd space, especially if it happens in youth, like young people. I think a really good example of um, is Hollywood. See many childhood stars that come out the other end, a stable, successful humans. Like once you've got adults actually serving a kid that are outside the family, like that whole thing gets flipped on its head that's just the kids aren't meant to do that and that happens in our sport our sport's so much about potential youth let's invest in youth let's invest in this and then they've got people from the brands and stuff grown men that are 
actually serving a child. It's just all twisted. So, yeah, so having said that, it's like it's really hard to make it transferable because their life's so different, they're treated so different. And, yeah, I just, like I said, and that, again, can lead to either being troubled or the other thing is you're so hell-bent on proving to make yourself relevant that, you're that obsessed with it to get that good there's an element of obsession and i just don't think it's healthy but having said that actually this is i've got a really good mate and he just blew my mind his name's tuck he's a japanese guy that's an alumni pepperdine university in america and i flew over to the states last year i finished my contract with julian and i started this contract with the experience with angelica and I flew over there because I had this Oracle concept, which was trying to update the format to meet the way that kids talk now. So it was more like an online-style event that was going to be um, talent ID and they were going to be able to express themselves and, and try and give them people skills and, and skills that on how they can articulate and present themselves to brands that were non-generic inside surfing. So how they could reach the masses instead of using our cultural words and just our sport was quite insulated within it. So anyway, I went over and I met with Tuck and I, I, I spoke to Tuck and I was, trying to, I was trying to sell him this Oracle program and he blew my mind. He said one thing that just stuck with me and he's like, why, why do you just have to be good? Like, why just focus on being a great surfer? Like, why can't at that same time, why couldn't you at the same time study business or look towards being the president of the United States in running something parallel? So looking at all these other skills that are transferable and I always believed in that, but but he just shut me down and opened my eyes. It's like, I've got this Korean snowboarder here and I think she's going to be the first president of the United States that it wasn't actually born in America and just just like I, I just got a Trump like I was just like wow because I'd, I'd explored those things but I didn't realize what he was doing so obviously in California and Pepperdine University's in Malibu so his network is just phenomenal like he's getting and I, when the world opens back up I really want to go spend some more time at that uni and and try and get I'd really love to get kids from Australia into that program because they've set up a university style surfing like they do with the NBA and the baseball. So they've set that up for surfing, but he just doesn't want talent. He wants people that are thinking and are articulate enough to move into different worlds. And he's actually taking action about it. It's all well and good to talk about theory, but Tucker's taking action. And I just, like I said, I flew over to the States only when it's the weekend. I went over with my wife and I left the kids here. And it was just to meet with Tuck. And, he, and I was so proud of this concept that was just about Oracle, which was about surfing. And I walked out of there with my tail between my legs and what, what he's doing. <laughs> it was so, Eddie, you famously coached Mick Fanny and you helped him to win some world championships. He won three. And, of course, he's the great ambassador for Australia because he hit that shark and it makes us all look great in, uh, from a halo effect. But before you coached him, you were good mates. You said about him, the way he lives has shaped the way that I act and the things I do. Without that, I'm not sure where I'd be. And I thought yeah. it was a great quote. So I wanted to ask you, what have the surfers that you've coached taught you? Because I get the impression talking to you and listening to you that everyone you meet leaves a little thumbprint, leaves a little fingerprint, and you embrace mm -hmm. that and you take that and then you play that back to other people. You're like this mm -hmm. conduit for energy and, uh, and information. <laughs> I don't know whether that's true or not. but Well, man, that, that's, I've actually never heard somebody articulate it that way, but that what you just said then was that's exactly what it is. It's like those, and that's where when there is an ego involved and a dictator, which again wrongly gets involved with titles. You know, I have a real issue with titles. You call yourself a coach, 
So you think that you know everything and you have to deliver everything, and that is completely wrong. It's exactly what you just said. It's the energy and the experience that those athletes have that you shape, create that trust together, and it's a two-way street. It's absolute two-way street. So there's not that. That's the biggest issue. Like, I think you just expose it. Like, if we were to summarise this whole conversation, it's just, you think, like, if you're trying to project that on someone, that's what active listening is. That's what I was talking about, where you don't actually, until I was deaf and figure that out. It's like when you've got to read that and realise that you really have to listen because a lot of the times people will talk and solve the problems for themselves. If you don't butt in and interrupt with an answer because you're a fucking expert, then people talk themselves around. Like it's just that they need a sounding board and that's that. So and it's like that hearing them and hearing the way that they get themselves to their solution is infective and that's how you get just as much out of that by active listening than, than being an expert and giving them an answer. So let's talk about the two-way street then because you're taking energy, you're taking learning from them and you're playing it back. But one of your athletes faced this horrible situation where they were attacked in a life and death situation when they're doing something they loved. And I'm, there's been many interviews with Mick where people ask him how did he cope and stuff. But what I would really like to know is how did you return the favour afterwards? What did you do with him to help him through that situation? It's just consistency in communication and contact. We right now, I still speak to Mick, even though I speak to him just about every day. If it isn't by talking, it's by text. It's just, you just care. It's just like, you just know that they'd always, even when, and that was the scariest part was that isolation piece when he wasn't communicating. Like that was really scary. It was kind of, it was scary. And we were all, like I said, just to be quite honest, it was sad. Like you just express that. Yeah, like just basically just, I think just tell him, how you felt when you went through it, you saw that. I guess by owning up as well, just saying I was sitting there with my wife and just crying my eyes out. I think we were all, it's funny, I'm going to tell you, I can't even surf, Andy. I'd love to learn. I grew up inland and I didn't grow up anywhere in the beach, but everyone you speak to, and, and you know, I live in Prague, so I'm, everyone you speak to, everyone saw that footage and everyone's fascinated by not just Mick, but Australians and how you can go out and do a a sport that we're famous for and that we love and still risk something like that happening and doing that knowing you've got a family and people that rely on you and stuff. And you're exactly right. And that's the reality of it. Like that, what you're saying is exactly right. Like it is, it's like there is that element. And when it happens that close to home and those things are, are sort of heightened, it brings it forward and it's like it, you, you love it that much and you keep going and you love the sport that much that you have to choose whether that, especially now and in this current situation, like even more so, you know, like I, I still want my son. I want, it was, would have been sitting exactly that same spot where the guy got taken at Greenmount. Like that's exactly where I go because Snapper's a pretty territorial place. So right out the top of that headland is controlled by the best guys in the world in the pack. So it's kind of like there's an etiquette thing. So you move down the point, the lesser surfer you are really like you should do that's the etiquette <laughs> so right where that got, guy got taken is where i take my son and my godson and my my wife and her friends is exactly where he was sitting so it's like having said that it's like it, what is a greater purpose you want to live like that and not have surfing in the ocean in your life or what what is the greater good and the fact is is that I'll be out there on the weekend with my son. And spending this much time in the ocean, you, you do pick up cues. You see the birds feeding and you see how close the sea life 
is coming to shore. Whales coming that close with their calves so people can take photos of them. They're not there to entertain us. They're doing that to try and protect them. So when you see them and they're not 10 kilometres out to sea and they're moving in, something's threatening them. So you, you do pick up these cues from the ocean where, oh, but I'll still, I'll be aware of that. I just won't race out. I'll spend 15 minutes from a high point engaging is there any schools of fish is there birds is there what are the whales doing is there any what are the dolphins you can really tell by um by the animal's behavior on what's what's happening and yeah we're just so grateful that he's still with us and he has and he's fulfilling that greater purpose you know like mick has realized that there's a hollowness in those trophies they're shiny and once that year's done and you've got them on the shelf he recognizes the power of his influence through sport to do greater good and why he's here and that said i just couldn't be more proud or couldn't have a better role model than that man i agree totally agree just going back to the accident you described it as forced meditation and that you ended up just running over so many stories in your head and I was curious to ask you, so from that experience, have you developed any ways of helping athletes deal with their own inner critic, that voice that gets yeah, in their own head? Mate, it's such a good point, that inner critic, like you were saying. Like I, For me, it's a bit of a buzzword and, and meditation and that right now has become pretty valuable. But I personally, I, I don't believe in that. I believe in action. So I believe if you've got that inner critic or there's something in there going, you don't meditate and try and get rid of it through breath. You get rid of it and channel it through through action. I'm fascinated for, for more on the other part. Like if you've got that inner critic and it, and it creates that tension or anxiety in these, these words that you hear, I'm more fascinated from, again, like when you talk about the animal world, it's like if a deer or something gets hit by a lion, they don't sit there and stew over it. Like you watch them, they'll twitch and shake it off and they'll go back and feed on that same field. So there's just, there's an expansion of energy that has to get out when those feelings are there. So instead of sitting in them and trying to figure it out for breath, I'm more curious about them doing something active to get rid of that that feeling or to get rid of it. So like I said, whether it be another sport or it be contact sport, if it's if it's frustration or there's something in there that they just have to they have to expand. So like even if it's a boxing bag or something like that, I'll always encourage movement over sitting there because that inner critic and like I said, I think with anxiety when you, you wake up at three in the morning, you've got a thought on your mind. If you don't get that out, it just it's like a rat in a wheel. It just keeps spinning. You just you just give different versions of itself. So I think meditation can work for some people, but I've found action more productive than meditation. So I always encourage them to move to get do something that's gonna expand that that it's not a helpful thought. I've also read where you said sometimes you can be too brutal with the truth. I'm interested to know, do you have any routines or ways of delivering feedback to athletes? that you found to be particularly good? Mate, I still like, that's probably my Achilles heels. Sometimes, like, I've been sacked a bunch of times from the athlete, like, because of how I've delivered it. I, I would never do it in public. It's always personal. Like, I'll never do it in front of anyone or there's no reactiveness. Like, I, I try and figure it out. And it's a brilliant question because that's the thing is, like, how long before something's forgotten or how long is that emotion? You know, where it's emotional or they can be irrational. But what is that? That key moment, if you leave it too long, it's 24 hours and definitely I've, um, I think I maybe should leave it a little longer than what I do. That's probably, <laughs> to be quite honest, it's like, that's something I've got to work on, mate. There's something I definitely need. <laughs> I stuff that up and that's, I need to, 
I need to figure that out. I'm too honest, too quick. I need to figure out what that time is when they move on from emotional and, and then it's not too long that's forgotten. So I'm way more too far the other way where it just comes straight out. Maybe I'll be able to work on that, mate. <laughs> we've all got we've all got things to work on. If that's your only one, you're doing okay. Could you tell us a little bit? I was just reading about this skate to create aerial surf training facility that you set up, and it just sounded really quite innovative. Could you tell us a little bit about that and how you've used it to help improve your yeah. surfers? Oh, for sure. Like that's a personal journey. I was obsessed with the Dog Town Z Boys, and I built a half pipe in my own backyard when I was a young kid, and I just. For me, it was like it was a hard surface. It was there was height involved, and anything I did on the ramp was transferable to the ocean because you were going to land in water, which was a lot safer. You were moving slower in the ocean, so it had the height. They got the ramps were like twelve, solid like big ramps. So it was like if you could transfer that, even as a kid, like you hit the ground. Just to summarise it really simply, is like you hit the ground. The ramp's hard oceans are soft so it's like if you master that first and that skate side then the ocean comes easy everything's slowed down and then again obviously it's gone towards aerial surfing like for all the right reasons entertainment and everyone can kind of understand they can't understand the intricacies of of rail work unless you're actually a true surfer so where the tool was going i love that cross-pollination i had an incredible opportunity to do that with um red bull like that was my first job and i never realized how lucky i actually was again mick kind of gave me that role like mick and the, the guy i was living with at the time Aunt Macca. Mick got Aunt Macca the job while I was living with Aunt Macca. We always travel together, but we've got this squad that just continually re-employs each other. And they say Aunt Macca's up here right now because they started bolted together. So we've got this really tight crew that, that did that. So so Red Bull gave me that opportunity of cross-pollination. And I, like I said, we'll find any other athlete that loves your sport. So there was some brilliant guys like snowboarders, Robbie Madison from motocross. He's a brilliant surfer. He's Australian guy from Nara. You would have seen his uh, Champs-Cielles jump on New Year's Eve. And Robbie's nuts, man. The guy's got like freaking Tourette's. He shakes when he gets nervous and he's sitting there twitching and then he hits a 110-foot jump. So just transferring like those things and back across to surfing and sharing that, like, I just, um, I was fascinated. So that's where the skate thing came from. Like, I have so much respect and I just really, really was obsessed with skating. And, and our worlds are so intertwined, snowboarding, skating and surfing. Like, that's the whole reason that Dogtown Z-Boys was, it was a flat summer and they, they went and found pools because there was no waves. So, and then skaters just took it to a new level. So for me, it wasn't really rocket science. It was just flipping it. Skating went so far ahead, snowboarding went there and then it was just trying to bring that back to the ocean so it was that was what was the birth of it and during this uh, whole lockdown period i mean you sound like you're a real student of coaching hungry to learn from anybody or anything but is there in the last six months when everything's been locked down has there been any resources books tv shows anything you've engaged with that you found quite interesting from a coaching point of view that's a really good question. Like, it just depends what you want to get out of the coaching thing. Like I said, there's so many hats. Like, I've been really obsessed more so now because our surf industry is nowhere near as strong as what it used to be. So I'm trying to look at external brands and models that are interested in it. So I've been right into the music thing, that cultural, like um, the Defiant ones. So Jimmy Levine and Dr. Dre, like how they 
creative markets and, and they recognise talent and produce that, but creative markets, because I think that's where our sport has to go now. Like, the world's changed. Shop, like, shopping's changed and that surf shops and, and that where they've got that interaction. Everything's gone online, so it's, I'm fascinated with looking at uh, ways, because I can't coach if I don't have anywhere to send my athletes. That's my biggest fear right now. It's like if, I was to, if a parent was to ask me, where are you taking my daughter? Where are you taking my son? And it's that uncertainty. So I almost feel like I have to create a market so I can re-coach again to, to guide them somewhere, if that makes sense. Because right now, it's like I don't know where I'm sending you. I'm not going to take your money because there's a lot of uncertainty. So I'm kind of exploring people that have created industries and models and trying to figure out who in our sport is interested in what we have that is relevant, it's going to be relevant in the future. For me, there's no coaching. I'm not looking towards other coaches. I'm looking to cultural leaders, really. Like, I'm looking at, yeah, that's what I'm sort of what I'm at at the moment. So that would be my recommendations. Like, you're looking externally for, for things that, outside of yeah just outside of what your realm is like they're always trying to move into different worlds Andy, you've been so generous with your time just i'm going to hear the kids wanting your attention in the background so i'll just ask you one last question (laughs) (laughs) i know you're not finished as a coach you've got a lot of business still ahead of you and especially now that surfing's in the olympics i think that's going to become a bigger and bigger i think it's going to drive the sport and really build awareness but what's the legacy that you hope to leave as a coach with your athletes I don't want, I really, really want it to be our culture. I don't want it to be forgotten. Like, I think um, when professionalism takes over, like, I want to know where things came from, how our industry was born. Like, we were a counterculture, and it's been forgotten through professionalism, especially now when the Olympics come on and you basically have to sign your life away for everything. Like, you have to sign, like, you can't interact, you can't do this, you can't say that, you can't. I don't want us to lose our voice, so I want them to make sure that they respect our forefathers. And that's something, like I said, especially for the Hawaiians. And um, we have an Indigenous community here that we've got Maurice Cole. He's my cultural compass. Everything and every decision I make, I'll make sure that it's like if I was sitting down with him at a table, I always imagine that he's beside me. And I don't want us to lose that culture. That's what scares me. I don't want it to become a rich sport. That The beauty of the ocean is that you can leave land, escape land and leave like leave another world and go into another world and, and everyone should have the ability to do that you shouldn't be rich like tennis or formula one where you have to earn and pay for a drive and come from that well so i don't want our culture to be forgotten so that legacy is like every one of my athletes if they want to work with us they have to respect and value that and bring that into their their interviews and make sure that that's still what what a wonderful answer and on that note i'm going to say Andy King, thank you so much for your time been an absolute pleasure you, and a privilege to chat with you and i look forward to seeing all your uh, surface particularly angelica carry on into the future hi everyone it's paul here and you have been listening to our conversation with surf coach andy king the key highlights for me were andy's view that great coaches create an empathetic space with their athletes that is based on authenticity and trust his focus on encouraging creativity in his athletes and the role of active listening and empowering people to find their own solutions. And I should also add that the Russian surfer he was training, Angelica, was not able to make the Olympics as the COVID situation stopped her development. And just before we go, coaches are not usually the type of people who seek the spotlight, and so if you can put us in contact with the great coach that you know has a unique story to share, then we would love to hear from you. 
you can contact us using the details in the show notes. Hi, I'm Kara Berry, host of Everyone's Business But Mine, and I am an all-inclusive addict. Enter Club Med, the best all-inclusive for you and your family. With resorts worldwide from their family flagship resort, Club Med Punta Cana, to their only mountain resort in Canada, Club Med Quebec, they have everything you need to relax. With their 20-plus sports activities, wellness programs, you can dine on delicious cuisine and make memories with your family. So book your next getaway with Club Med. Visit clubmed.us or call 1-800-CLUB-MED or your travel advisor.